Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 91 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how does the empty tomb of Jesus comfort us, especially in the midst of anxiety and pandemic? So happy Monday, everybody. Godspeed and safety and rich blessings to all of you essential workers out there. May the Lord bless you and keep you safe as you serve this country. Nurses, doctors, scientists, first responders, and medical people, we are rooting for you and praying for you. Thank you for being healers and servants of Jesus and his people in these just ridiculously crazy times. May the Lord bless you and keep you safe and shower his comfort on you. Today is day 13 of shelter in place for many of us in Central California. Yesterday, most of my family enjoyed a lovely hike together after our live stream worship service on some trails near our house, which is allowed under our order. For those who are under shelter in place and it's allowed, that has been one of the most important things that my family can do is we try to get out every day and walk together as many people as are willing in the sunlight if possible. It's a wonderful time even to get out by yourself and pray and walk in your city and neighborhood to seek the Lord and to bathe in his light, his sunlight and in the light of his grace. Uh, today's Bible's readings are fantastic and I had to choose between multiple topics that I think would have been really excellent to cover. Leviticus 1, Proverbs 17, which has some really great quarantine wisdom for those of us that are in quarantine. John chapter 20, all about the empty tomb, and Philippians chapter 4. Now, I came really close today to focusing on Philippians 4 with a question along the lines of, what exactly does I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me mean? Does it mean I can score all the touchdowns and be successful in life or something different? But I think we'll hold off on that discussion until we come back around to Philippians 4, Lord willing. Our focus today, surprise if you know me, is the empty tomb of Jesus. I really almost never pass up an opportunity to talk about the resurrection if I can. How important is it to Christians, especially when the whole world is shaking in its boots about the spread of a scary illness? How important is the empty tomb? Well, it's pretty darn important. So let's go read John 20 together, and then we'll come back and hear from Dr. Gary Habermas, who is honestly one of the best teachers I've ever had, and a prominent expert on the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20 verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and the other at his feet. They said to her, 
Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord! But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I've had some great professors in my seminary days. Uh, a lot of them, some really high quality teachers. And Gary Habermas was one of the absolute best. He teaches apologetics primarily, and his focus, his specialty is on the resurrection of Jesus. He's written a lot of books. He's uh, one of the foremost experts in the world on the resurrection. He's debated many prominent atheists. And he was honestly, he was a fantastic and riveting teacher. And that class left a huge impression on me. So I'd like to turn to Dr. Habermas to give us some reasons to believe that the empty tomb of Jesus was a historical event and not merely a religious belief. So this is Dr. Habermas on major arguments on the empty tomb. Number one, perhaps the most powerful argument favoring the empty tomb concerns its location and the events surrounding it. The gospel accounts are unanimous that Jesus was buried in a tomb that was located in Jerusalem. Few critics question this. 
holding that Jesus died and was buried in the city. Most also agree that early Christian preaching took place here, leading to the birth of the church. But it is precisely since Jesus' grave was located nearby that we have a serious problem if it was anything but empty. Unless Jesus' tomb was unoccupied, the early Christian preaching would have been disproved on the spot. How could it be preached that Jesus had been raised from the dead if that message were starkly confronted by a rotting body? Exposing the body would kill the message and be an easy disproof of Christianity before it even gained momentum. Thus, Jerusalem is the last place for the early Christian teachings to gain a foothold unless Jesus' grave really was empty. A Sunday walk to the tomb could have settled the matter one way or the other. A creative response might be to assert that perhaps the body was indeed in the tomb, but very soon afterwards the body would have been unrecognizable due to its decomposition. Or perhaps the tomb was still simply closed without being opened for inspection. But these questions miss entirely the point of the Christian preaching that the tomb was empty. Therefore, if any body was found in Jesus's tomb, or whether Jesus or somebody else's body, or if it were still closed, this would have contradicted the teaching that it was empty. In Jerusalem, the mistake would have been exposed in no time. Number two reason to believe the tomb was empty. The most mentioned argument in support of the gospel accounts is the unanimous agreement that women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. While it is not strictly true that women were disallowed from testifying in a court of law, it was clearly the case that there was a strong prejudice against using female testimony for important matters. Notwithstanding this common stance, the gospel accounts insist in their proclamation that the women were the star witnesses to the empty tomb. But why should these writers highlight female testimony unless the women really were the first to discover this fact? To do so would be to weaken their case considerably in the eyes of most listeners. Given this situation in first century Palestine, we can only conclude that the gospel authors were clearly convinced that the women had discovered the empty tomb. They were more interested in reporting the truth than they were in avoiding criticism. This argument is very widely recognized and few scholars have challenged it, which testifies to its strength. Reason number three to believe the empty tomb was historical. While the empty tomb accounts in the Gospels are later than Paul's writings, it is crucially important that the empty tomb accounts are witnessed by many. In other words, whichever major view of Gospel origins one takes, the empty tomb narratives arose from from more than one independent source. In fact, scholars think that there could be as many as three or four independent traditions in the gospel, which very strongly increases the likelihood that the reports of the empty tomb are both early and historical. Along with the Jerusalem location and the testimony of the women, I think that these three are the best arguments in favor of the empty tomb. Number four, most recent scholars seem to agree that while Paul does not explicitly mention an empty tomb, the early tradition that the apostle reported to others in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4 implies an empty tomb. The listing of the gospel content moves from Jesus' death to his burial to his resurrection from the dead to his appearances. This sequence strongly suggests that, however it may have been transformed, Jesus' body that died and was buried is the same one that was raised afterwards. Thus, what was placed in the ground is precisely what emerged. In short, what went down is what came up. 
such a process would have resulted in the burial tomb being emptied. That Paul does not specifically mention the empty tomb keeps this from being as strong a point as it could have been. Still, to say so clearly that Jesus' dead body was buried, raised, and appeared would be a rather strange process unless the tomb had been vacated in the process. Reason number five to believe that the empty tomb was historical. Many scholars, says Habermas, also concede that Acts 13 may very well contain another early creedal tradition, an early sermon account that was included in a book that was written at a later date. This report, found in Acts 13, 29-31 and 36-37, is attributed to Paul and clearly teaches that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb. Then he was raised and appeared to his followers without undergoing any bodily decomposition. If so, here we would have an early text where Paul even more strongly acknowledged the empty tomb because Jesus appeared and his body did not experience any decay. Reason number six, according to reports that are found in Matthew 28, 11-15, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, both of them early church fathers, for almost two centuries or more, the Jewish leaders tried to explain that the tomb was empty because Jesus' disciples stole his body. This means that the Jewish hierarchy even acknowledged the fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. However, even skeptics freely recognized that the explanation provided by the Jewish leaders was exceptionally weak. For example, if the disciples stole Jesus' body, how can we account for their incredible transformation? such as forfeiting their family years as well as their jobs, health, and even their peace, all for the right to be chased for decades around the Roman Empire just so they could preach a message that they clearly knew was a false tale. Further, how do we explain their willingness to die for what they knew was a false proclamation of Jesus' resurrection? Moreover, how does this explanation allow us to count for the conversion of Jesus' brother James, who had rejected Jesus' message when he was alive? And we also lack any convincing reason for Paul's conversion from Judaism. So, all for the sake of providing a clearly unconvincing alternative account, the Jewish leaders even admitted the empty tomb. Finally, number seven reason to believe the empty tomb was historical. Habermas says, A word should be said about the scholarly thesis of N.T. Wright and others. In the ancient world, whether pagan, Jewish, or Christian, writings up until the 2nd century A.D. were in complete agreement Agreement that the very definition of resurrection was clearly a bodily notion. In fact, there are almost no exceptions to this ancient view that being raised from the dead is something that, if it ever occurred, could happen only to the body. So it had this same meaning throughout the Old Testament and gospel accounts, as well as in Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament teachings about Jesus. This would indicate that Jesus' resurrection was conceived in a bodily manner, necessitating that the tomb was empty. These are some of the reasons why a majority of contemporary scholars recognize the fact of the empty tomb. Still other arguments could be provided as well. This is why historian Michael Grant concludes that, quote, The historian cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb because if we apply the same historical criteria that we use elsewhere, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate 
the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. In light of arguments such as those we have produced here, this conclusion seems to be very difficult to avoid. The normal application of historical rules to the various data indicates that, just shortly after his death, Jesus' tomb was indeed found empty. And that is a reason to rejoice, brothers and sisters. Now, we have covered the resurrection multiple times on this podcast, so if you want to hear more about why the tomb was not merely empty, but also Jesus rose from the dead, I would encourage you to go back and listen to a few of those episodes. You can find them by uh, going to BibleReadingPodcast.com and searching for resurrection, or you can simply go through your podcasting app and scroll back a few episodes. The uh, Most of the episodes about the resurrection occur when we cover one of the last chapters of the gospel, but also we talked about it when we went through 1 Corinthians 15. Well, let's go on to the rest of our Bible readings, beginning with Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He will bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head, and the fat on top of the the burning wood on the altar. The offerer is to wash its entrails and legs with water. Then the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for burnt offering is from the flock, from sheep or goats, he is to present an unblemished male. He will slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, will splatter its blood against the altar on all sides. He will cut the animal into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests will arrange them on top of the burning wood on the altar. But he is to wash the entrails and legs with water. The priest will then present all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he is to present his offering from the turtle doves or young pigeons. Then the priest is to bring it to the altar and will twist off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood should be drained at the side of the altar. He will remove its digestive tract, cutting off the tail feathers, and throw it on the east side of the altar at the place for ashes. He will tear it open by its wings without dividing the bird. Then the priest is to burn it on the altar on top of the burning wood. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Proverbs 17 verse 1. Better a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and share an inheritance among brothers. A crucible for silver and a smelter for gold, and the Lord is the tester of hearts. A wicked person listens to malicious talk. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. The one who mocks the poor insults his maker, and one who rejoices over calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of the elderly, and the pride of children is their father's. Eloquent words are not appropriate on a fool's lips. How much worse are lies for a ruler? 
A bribe seems like a magic stone to its owner. Wherever he turns, he succeeds. Whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. A rebuke cuts into a perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a fool. An evil person desires only rebellion. A cruel messenger will be sent against him. Better for a person to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his foolishness. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will never depart from his house. To start a conflict is to release a flood. Stop the dispute before it breaks out. It's good quarantine wisdom there. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the just both are detestable to the Lord. Why does a fool have money in his hand with no intention of buying wisdom? A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. One without sense enters an argument, an agreement, and puts up security for his friend. One who loves to offend loves strife. One who builds a high threshold invites injury. One with a twisted mind will not succeed, and one with deceitful speech will fall into ruin. A man fathers a fool to his own sorrow. The father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A wicked person secretly takes a bribe to subvert the course of justice. Wisdom is the focus of the perceptive, but a fool's eyes roam to the ends of the earth. A foolish son is grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. It is certainly not good to find an innocent person or to beat a noble for his honesty. The one who has knowledge restrains his words, and one who keeps a cool head is a person of understanding. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Because, once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. 
but I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I can't end it any better than that. Dear brothers and sisters, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing, Godspeed.